All right. Well, welcome back to Once Upon a Tech. Welcome. We're excited today because we have someone that I actually met MozFest in 2016. Sabar Khan, how are you doing? Great. Uh, yeah, good to talk to you again. MozFest 2016 seems like so long ago, but... Oh, it uh, does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, four years ago in calendar years, but then I'm, we're working in like dog years now. So mm-hmm. what's calendar years? It feels like 20 years ago in like life years. Because Is that the year I was with you, Kim? No, or was I no. with you in 2017? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's even, even longer ago. I have not had the chance to work with or really talk to Sabra yet. So I'm so, so, so excited to learn from you today, Sabra. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I know. Super excited to talk to you both. So one of the things, uh, obviously, that I found out right away is you're a progressive computer science educator. You care a lot about ethics in CS. And so I thought, and, and you know, this is something I'm also passionate about. And since we met, I've been um, actively following you, hopefully is the right word, on Twitter. <laughs> Not physically, like when you um, leave your house. <laughs> I, I just... <laughs> appreciate so much everything you do and want to share it with our listeners. So could you just first tell us a little bit about your story? What brought you to where you are right now? Yeah, absolutely. I am an immigrant to this country with my family. We came over in the 90s. We landed in uh, suburban Baltimore, eventually settled in suburban Chicago, graduated from a large public high school, was fortunate enough to get to college on scholarship, and then graduate, this is sort of where the story gets interesting. I graduated, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And uh, I worked at a summer camp in New Jersey, a very rustic. I don't know if you know those New York, uh, like funded camps that they have for disadvantaged kids. I worked in one of those in New Jersey. And uh, at the end of that summer, I didn't really know what to do. I went, back, I went to New York and I hung out and I saw an ad for New York City Teaching Fellows, which is an alternative certification program. And my first day in the classroom was the first day back after Thanksgiving. And uh, it was a auspicious beginning to like a very difficult entry into education. And, you know, I think a lot of what I carry forward uh, comes from that pivotal few years of, of seeing what happens at a high needs inner city school in in Brooklyn, New York, uh, which is where it was for the first two years of my career. Wow. And not only starting at a school that could be considered on the more difficult rate, like edge of the teaching range, but to start, if you're not in education, you might not understand the importance of starting after Thanksgiving break, (laughs) but all of the community (laughs) building and all of those like good vibes and loving your teacher happen really in August and September. That's when you become a class and a group and you really start to love each other. And then when things get hard academically or behaviorally and when it gets cold and we're all stuck inside, you remember how you learn to love each other in those first community building days. That's why those first five to 10 days of school are so important. So as soon as I heard you say that you started mid-year, like my jaw hit the desk. I was like, oh no, poor you. Oh, that's tricky. But it sounds like that really having a tough first few years can shape the rest of your career. Yeah. And then it also can, I don't know, uh, for me because those two years were so difficult and, and so hard to understand why they were difficult, that essential question has stayed with me throughout my career. And it's something that I still think about as to why are some schools for some kids set up one way and where, you know, schools for other kids set up differently. Um, and I think that's the 
tell, you know, <laughs> the joke people make on Twitter right these days is something like, you know, what radicalized you? Uh, that's what <laughs> radicalized me at the age of 21 is seeing uh, what I what I participated in. I shouldn't make myself passive in the situation. I was an adult participating in uh, uh, what it continues to be a very uh, broken education system. So I still think about that when I think about that with computer science. I think about it when I think about it ethics. Uh, and when I am uh, in New York City, uh, when I think about my city, that's also what I think about uh, is how, what are we going to do about that question? You're blowing my mind already. It's been like five minutes. I'm going to have to pace myself. Okay. So how, how did either you find computer science or computer science education find you? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun story. A little bit, maybe a little bit light, more lighter uh, than the, the first part. So after that, the first couple of years, uh, which were pretty, you know, incredibly uh, challenging, and I learned a lot. I wanted to work on school reform, and the charter school movement was going strong. And I uh, became a KIPP teacher. I ended up at a, a school with special needs. Started getting my masters. I was teaching science this whole time. I was a I had gotten a bio degree in college, and this this is going to sound. Uh, I don't know how this is going to sound actually, but I remember when like Google Docs came out. And it really had a huge impact on my teaching practice in my classroom. I was like, oh, we can work in a different way. Like all the ideas that people know now about blended learning and, you know, asynchronous work and that kind of stuff. Like I was having sort of epiphanies uh, to myself and I started incorporating into my classroom. We were doing group projects, we're creating documents together, creating all kinds of really fun stuff. And it really pushed me to think more about what role does technology play in schools and Around 2012, this is, I was in California at this point, I wanted to jump back into technology and computer science, and I've got a job in New York, which brought me back to New York, and at this point, I was in the private school world, which is, um, you know, it's sort of connects back to the first part of the conversation, and I've been teaching computer science since then, so about seven or eight years, started with tech integration, which is like helping teachers use technology, and then started teaching some classes, uh, you know, the basics like Stitch Scratch and whatnot, and pretty soon discovered P5.js, uh, which I think we'll talk about, and processing and Fund processing foundation, and uh, just a really lovely community that aligned with my uh, things that I cared about. And uh, we've been, uh, what we call this a career coding community, has been my guiding uh, work in computer science, which is what I teach uh, during my day job. I love that it was just curiosity that like organically got you there the working with Google Docs and being like, hey, this is great. How can I do this more? How would this benefit my students more? I, there's, we've heard a lot of kind of computer science origin and romance stories and <laughs> you, yours just feels like such a natural step to, I like this, how do I do more of it? How can I make my students' lives and education easier and better? Which is getting into it with empathy and curiosity in mind might explain why your, why your work is so exciting. Yeah, you know, but you know, this is to to put a little wrinkle on it, though. You know, like in hindsight, once you know, like the ed tech movement is also a kind of you know very complicated uh, place in education, and you know, looking back at it, I can see why you know young educators, new educators, get so very excited about digital tools and what's the shiny new thing that's going to make a difference and whatnot. And I don't know if I still share that kind of 
ah, shucks, let's do this. This is great mentality anymore. And partially this is, you know, I think we'll talk about this, but ethics and, and computer science sort of gives me a hesitation. Um, and something we're talking about with educators is when we sign up our students for online services, uh, what we're doing and what we're participating in. Yeah, so I'm curious what brought you to, um, you host an ethical CS chat, and I know that that was a big part of your workshop at MozFest. And I'm just wondering, how did you get there? And what is your passion about that? Yeah, it, it's really great that uh, Kim, we, we met when we sort of started this project, and it's evolved quite a bit. So it started with uh, me and uh, my collaborator, Jeannie Crowley, who's a who's a member of our community at large. Uh, she's on Twitter. Uh, she's great. You can find her. And uh, we started talking in 2016 about uh, feeling that computer science, especially the CS for All movement, which was really gaining steam at that uh, around that time, uh, was missing um, significant things inside of it. There was a lot of you know tech industry uh, boosterism, uh, but a lack of sort of critical insight as to the power of computers, uh, especially computer science, uh, to cause harm. And so what we took to MOSFET was uh, a series of ideas for courses, liberal arts computer science courses, that we were hoping uh, to encourage uh, folks to try and collaborate on. We did some design work on that. Not much came out of it aside from making a few connections and getting the idea out there. And then about a year later, uh, New York City Department of Education, which runs a large CS for All program, they had been talking to some of their uh, advisors and they were hoping to bring in more ethics and uh, similar uh, thinking into their computer science program. So they, I, we were talking and I said, hey, why don't we start a chat and we can take one of your advisors, which was a prominent uh, presence in the in the tech world, Anil Dash. And uh, we did the first chat. We coincided it with the Computer Science Teachers Conference, uh, which happens, it's coming up now, but 2017, we started that summer and we've been going for, well, guess well, <laughs> like uh, three years now, and the chat happens monthly on the last Wednesday of every month. And the goal is, and this is something I, I would love some thoughts on and feedback on, how to do ethics and what can we do with Twitter and, and what should happen in the classroom. So the chat, the goal behind the chat is to get a bunch of experts around a topic. So let's say AI, um, uh, what I do is I find uh, they have to be on Twitter, uh, writers, experts, uh, thinkers on the topics, if they'll agree to doing this kind of, you know, weird thing online, get a bunch of them together, advertise it, and then prepare some questions and ask those questions and then make the question so that anyone can answer. So people join on the hashtag, everyone sees the question I send out, everyone can respond. And my hope is to build dialogue, like, you know, I want people to think out loud about ethics in public and be able to give each other feedback and ask questions and follow up. The way I think about it is like to sort of practice your ethical thinking brain in the area of computer science and using that platform to then encourage folks to bring it into the classroom, to bring the experts' voices into the classroom, their work in the classroom, ideas that come up through the chat, uh, try them out in the classroom and then share them back with us. So it's a lot like, you know, a lot of the hashtag activism that uh, folks are seeing on Twitter and that educators have been doing for a while, all the ed chats, uh, have inspired us to do this. And uh, my collaborator now is uh, Alana Robinson, uh, a special education teacher in New York City who teaches computer science. And uh, we've been doing it for about a year and a half now together. Do people ever come back and share things that they've tried? 
I'm sure they do. Let me ask, do they, do you get more <laughs> that come back that have great results? And people do ever people come back and say, I tried this and it really bombed. What can I do better? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, it, it's hard to express difficult or negative symptoms, and, and maybe that's why I haven't seen it. I'm not foolish enough to imagine that, you know, all kids are hungry for ethical lessons in their computer science classroom. So I, I, I you know, I imagine there's quite a bit of resistance, but folks have shared lessons that created to the thread, uh, to the hashtag. And I know folks have tried those lessons have been very appreciative. My colleagues, in fact, uh, at my, my, my own school, through the hashtag, I've found activities and then used them. And uh, I was just talking with them this morning about what we want to try for next year. So despite it having, you know, sort of no budget and no support, I think we've been modestly successful. And I would love to see how we can grow it, which I think would mean being able to raise money to, to pay people to create work and share work is my goal for the project. When Kim and I venture into kind of ethics, and we tend to do it with the middle school crowd or the upper elementary crowd, we don't necessarily call it ethics in CS, but I find that the kids are hyper engaged. They, and mm-hmm. Kim, you can, I, I, was I don't just know gonna, I, yeah. I was just going to say that, that I think when you bring ethics in, you're bringing in relevant experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, because like the the list of examples that you did at MozFest and the ones that you've been collecting, I mean, those are real life examples. Those are, you know, facial recognition gone wrong. The, you know, what is, what are all these devices that are listening to us doing? Like, these are things that kids are curious about. Oh, yeah. We're not giving the opportunity to figure out what this means for their lives. And I think they like that opportunity. We have a Google Home in yeah. our library and have been working with it for a, f- a few years and we use it very carefully. And, and every year when I bring, we call her a her, I don't know how that happened, but every year when we bring her out, we have a conversation about what she can hear and what she does with it and who writes the code that makes Google run and what if Google doesn't recognize your voice and it turns into things that maybe don't look on paper like ethics in computer science. But when I look back on it, I think, wow, those those kids really want to know about the bias within this code and they want to know what it's doing with what it's hearing and where the answers come from. It's And those are, I start that with third grade. I use it with third through eight. Yeah, I, I do hear this may be a reflection of, you know, the way kids evolve, uh, being interested in, in right and wrong. I mean, not that all kids are interested in right and wrong. I think what happens, I think what younger kids, when they hear about injustice, want to stamp it out. I think the reluctance I was referencing, I think in high school, there's a, especially in like advanced computer science classes, there's a, there's a feeling that ethics is an add-on, that it's, mm. an, it's a distraction to the real work, which is code on the computer. And that is, I think that's, a, that's not a benign challenge for teachers who are trying to, to talk about ethics and justice. And, you know, eventually a lot of these things will run into politics because, you know, decisions will have to get made around these questions. So I would love to think more out loud about how do we make it work for different age groups and uh, especially for uh, folks who have decided they're on one side of the issue. I think uh, one one thing I want to do is sort of deescalate the sort of polarization on the issue and partly to do that, we're trying to do this thinking out loud idea of, I'm not responding, you know, I'm sort of asking a very open-ended question without like a make a choice as to what's right and wrong. I'm asking you to out loud to tell me what you're thinking about this. How are you balancing this question is what I'm trying to model with the chat, which I hope will allow all kinds of audiences to engage with it uh, versus kind of the, the debate model around ethics that 
is, is I feel like somewhat broken and doesn't you know work with all age groups. You speak like someone who maybe sees some conversations in the chat that don't go the way you were hoping. Well, not not really in the chat because you know the chat is very like minded. I okay. in class I I know there's some you know there's been uphill battles around uh, you know reading something and, and discussing it or you know putting the computers away. But that can happen you know lots of different ways. Ethics is one area where. There's a, you know, there's an audience that expects a very specific thing from computer science classroom and, you know, partially with ethics and creative computing and a lot of this progressive computer science, we're trying to change what the expectations of the students are as to what will happen in the classroom and, uh, and the parents' expectations and administrators. Because if we want, you know, a, a classroom that's holistic in computer science, it's going to have to include discussion, it's going to have to include reading it's going to have to include talking to each other it's going to have to be include looking at each other it's going to, have to you know often not include a computer so that's not a you know that's like a real challenge sometimes especially with juniors and seniors you know who are like i want to code and that's right. why i came here i also think when you're talking ethics you're almost in, inevitably gonna have these uncomfortable conversations right because mm -hmm. there are there are things that we put blinders on and once you take those blinders off it's sort of like you know oh holy <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what have I been doing? What have I been thinking? You know, I think Black Lives Matter is really a great example of that because I remember first hearing about it at MozFest. In fact, I have a sign, uh, Black Lives Matter, that somebody made at MozFest that they hung in our space. And so I took it with, but it just feels like recently, you know, I've had some blinders on and now it's like, oh, you know, but it takes uncomfortable conversations to uh, talk about what these things mean to our ourselves and our society. Yeah, that's a really difficult part to acknowledge uh, about anti-racism work, right? Like the idea that we're all sort of complicit and all can benefit from a racist system, even though we may not have, you know, what we think of racism among, amongst ourselves. Ethically, we're similarly implicated. Like we, you know, we benefit from a surveillance state. We benefit from things that harm other people. We have to often as mature, you know, participants in this conversation come to terms with that. That's part hard in my life, you know, like I I enjoy Twitter a lot, but it functions as a, you know, a vehicle to sell ads and, you know, surveil on people partially. Right, uh, right. How do I, so what, what I want to do is have adults and, and, and include adults, the, the students, acknowledge it from that moment of like understanding our complicity in it. Because right. uh, then I think we can actually get to something authentic versus surveillance is wrong, surveillance is right, you know. Um, that and, and, and the other thing is, you know, I use the word ethics, but it's really not ethics. We're, we're really hoping to talk about justice and, and ethics is a, is a vehicle for, you know, to, to get to that. And that's the second part of the, uh, what we're trying to do is to then imagine what, what the right way is uh, to speculate on it. Uh, often when you're learning about ethical uh, technology, you're hearing a lot of horror stories about what has happened. And those are very important to know. But we really have to let young people think out loud and, and, and let us know what kind of world of tech do we want. There's a lot of dangers that we have placed them in. And, and it's, you know, it's not a very uh, easy place to be online as a young person and not uh, get into a lot of trouble. And, you know, I, I just, as for, I feel like that's not the world we want for them. And we have to let them participate in, in fixing that and changing that. So there's a speculative aspect around ethical thinking that I'm also trying to uh, also support. And I heard you mentioned before that people sort of see it as an add-on or something that takes away. I mean, it feels like 
conversations surrounding justice from all angles are still being treated that way. And education needs to go through this paradigm shift where we start to see conversations about like anti-racist, culturally competent curriculum, conversations about ethics and about justice as part of the core work that can apply itself to every subject, as opposed to something you do when you have 20 extra minutes of homeroom time or something that you Mm -hmm. teach during one month of the year. And I'm excited by the idea that your work seems to be channeling these conversations about ethics and justice into everything else where it should be. It should be at the core of all of our work and not just one lesson within each unit or like Justice Fridays where we talk about it as if it doesn't connect to everything else. We laugh, but I'm sure there's someone doing that somewhere being like, I'm doing it, I'm moving it forward. I, w- I would applaud them, you know, like I, I yeah. it is like a muscle and the first few times you use it, it feels really awkward and stupid and you're like, but one thing you're doing is you're normalizing it. So it's going to feel, uh, I remember those feelings of like, hey, let's read Kathy O'Neill's book and me feeling awkward too. And like literally reading the book, like we're going to read the book out loud because if I assign it for homework, I know none of you are going to do it. Like, like open to page one, you're going to read first. And how awkward that felt, but it's mostly to yeah normalize for myself, for the students, for the school what uh, what what's happening inside of a computer science classroom. So if someone's going through those really awkward steps, and gosh, you know, as I've done them, um, yeah, <laughs> good for you. And you know, I'll, I'll I'll see you on the other side, I guess. So <laughs> ready for more complicated stuff. One of the things you talked about is what we want computer science and what we want technology to do for us. And I think that's sort of the other side that I see from you is this um, working with the Processing Foundation and computer science is sort of student-driven creative outlet. Yeah, uh, I'd love to talk about Processing Foundation. It's, uh, just a little bit of history. It started as a project, a software project for artists in uh, MIT Media Lab uh, in the early, late 90s, early aughts. Um, it became a Java library that you could download and it was basically set up for doing visual work on the computer through software instead of using, you know, Adobe or something else, you could actually write code and lots of powerful work has been made through it. It's, uh, it's been a successful platform for artists and educators, uh, mostly in design schools. And things sort of changed a little bit around when I talked about switching to computer science around uh, 2012, 2013, because uh, a version of it, uh, not a version, in fact, probably a new, like call it a a whole new project, uh, P5JS, which borrowed a lot of the DNA from processing, but it works in JavaScript, it runs in the browser, it's like like processing open source, everything's done in public. Uh, the project is led by Lauren McCarthy, uh, an artist uh, um, and coder, uh, educator at uh, UCLA. She actually has a project called Following. Uh, she also, you should look up her artwork, uh, Lauren McCarthy, because she, aside from leading this project, is also, uh, it's hard to say what she does, but she'll like, yeah, I, I guess just I'm telling your follow uh, your listeners to check up Lauren McCarthy and she has a project call following about that question of what does it mean when you say you're following someone. P5 uh, got used in a lot of places, including NYU's uh, ITP program, where, where Dan Schiffman, who runs the very awesome coding train teaches, he's been a member of the Processing uh, Foundation for a while. So we sort of have a nexus uh, of, of places and then some of the ITP grads went over to work for the DOE and the Computer Science for All program. 
and uh, portions of the DOE use P5.js. Lots of schools have started using it. it. You know, because we have a web editor and it's all JavaScript, you can run it on your Chromebook, you can run it on your iPad, and you can share your project just via a link. So it's totally remote learning friendly. And what we value are uh, accessibility. So making things as simple and easy to use as possible. So if you look at our web editor, which is editor.p5js.org, um, there's lots of editors out there. Our one is a really nice, simple, easy to use editor that get, can get you going with code very quickly. You can read about what we believe, p5js.org, uh, and then processingfoundationsprocessingfoundation.org. And outside of these software projects, we also support fellowships, we support educators, we give out uh, microgrants ourselves, we participate in open source software development, uh, we participate in Google Summer of Code. So we are in this, you know, this computer science for all program, which is dominated by industry programs or university computer science for all programs. We are sort of unique in that we are this slightly, you know, odd art software education project that is, is grassroots and open source. Uh, we are doing a lot of things with very little support, and uh, if you know, if you share our values, we'd love to sort of connect and see if we can help. So that model has been really important to me. I try to make myself available in the same way that I've seen Dan and other folks do and try to help each other. And uh, I think we have a, a, a nice community in the K-12 CS for all world. You can find us on Twitter and, and stuff and see the work that's happened. But pedagogical learning is in the classroom. It's, you know, we're still covering the same stuff, like, you know, variables, loops, and all that. But it's, uh, it's all focused on projects, and the projects are mo around creative output. So art, music. So let's say you're learning about variables. The first project is let's make an album cover. And really, you're learning about coordinate plane. You're learning about placing things on a canvas. You're learning about X and Y and, and you're learning about variables uh, in general. So that's sort of what creative computing does. It, it, it changes the focus and that has, you know, big implications for culturally relevant teaching because you can change what the project is and sort of reorient the way the class thinks about the world by doing interesting projects. Like we did a poetry generator, uh, but you can adapt that to different things so that you can, you know, point to particular things in, in the world you want to look at. And I think it also gives folks who are new to computer science a chance to engage with what's happening without having to be an expert on the technical side. Everyone can talk about what a good album cover looks like. And once you can talk about that, we can talk about how to get there. And that is, is a really important part of uh, the creative coding classroom. And um, it's, it's fun to place in a lot of places. Uh, Scratch has a very similar MO and, and we share a lot of the same uh, vision uh, from Scratch. So a lot of people, once, they, you know, once they're moving on from Scratch, often end up using P5. And then there's also processing if you want a full you know, desktop application that can be really powerful and do powerful things. So. That's like processing foundation in a in a quick summary that I hope I didn't forget anything. I want to be in your class. I want to like follow you on Twitter and in real <laughs> life. I just want you to teach me everything you know. I'm just sitting here with like my mouth wide open. This all sounds incredible. Yeah, to tell my tell my students that is is uh, is, is what I have to say. That they don't <laughs> sometimes they're not. Well, let's think about students. They don't know what that they're getting is something quite different. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes I tell them that, like, you know, you, what you're doing isn't the way computer science would have been taught, you know, very recently. I wonder what the impact of that will be long-term to grow up in. You know, it's very possible now you just take creative computing your whole career now, all the way up to college. 
Yeah, right, because a lot of colleges are adjusting their curriculum, so it's more accessible and more relevant. My colleague, Zach Minster, he teaches ninth through 12th graders, and processing is a huge part of his curriculum in uh, computer science principles, and he's just a huge fan. I've even taught it a little bit to middle schoolers. I teach a digital arts class, and I want them to know, you know, when they're doing their digital arts with Photoshop or whatever, like somebody had to code that. And so I even do a little bit of processing with them so they can see what that looks like, but what it feels like to actually code their own paint on a, on a canvas. Yeah. And you know, the, there's call, like, there's some, um, especially liberal arts colleges that are using uh, P5 or processing in their CS program. And uh, the point about open source, uh, if your listeners don't know, it means that open source software projects are sort of done in the open, uh, transparent, democratic uh, way. So uh, P5, its editor, all of it processing is done that way. So you can go on GitHub and you can see what the issues are. You can contribute, you can uh, fork it and make your own version. You can make it better. So there's people who are working on, uh, you know, turning meeting Scratch halfway so that you can have P5 and Block. There's folks who are trying to make the editor, uh, like their own editor that's easier to use. So one, that's one of our beliefs is that uh, open source can allow a, for more grassroots and democratic system. And that sort of fits with the, how this is progressive. Ooh, meeting Scratch halfway with a, like a mix of Blockly. And oh, that sounds great. I feel like I even, even I could learn like Scratch and Blockly have been a huge part of the way I've taught myself to code because I have no formal computer science training. And so the idea of bringing processing into that like, do it for me, please, because <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I want to learn. <laughs> well, Sabra, this has been such an excellent uh, conversation. Uh, you shared so much. I have tried to note down some of the resources, and we do create a resource page, so we'll be sure to have that, but we'll also include your Twitter handle, and I'm sure you'd love to hear from folks. Yes, uh, please do, and, you know, I often do office hours and stuff, so if they catch, you know, they look on my Twitter at the right time and they want to chat, we're on once a month. You can book some time and we'll get on Zoom and, and, and talk. So it's one of the things I'm going to try to do a lot more. So if your listeners appreciate that, uh, please check my Twitter and find the time. Thank you so much. You have taught me so much in this conversation and I am now following you on Twitter and I'm going to learn all the things and be the lurker <laughs> in your ethical CS chat and just learn from everybody. I, my mind is spinning in the best way from this conversation. So thank you for sharing your expertise and your passion with us today. Of course. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Well, Sarah, until next week. Tech, love, and happiness.